1: fond memories. I am one of the very few people in North America that have had a chance to see and feed a Sumatran rhino.
0: What can they teach us? And how they did that is these last two females, researchers that you know, that you've been working with, that you worked with in your PhD work, they go in and they do an oocyte retrieval. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: This is an Angie podcast. The Anything with rhinos is an Angie podcast.
1: Well, I know uh, the people can't see me right now, but I am smiling ear to ear, and it's not just because Chris and I did like 10 takes for this intro right now because, <laughs> <laughs> because of my barking dog, yes. uh, but no, really, it is just – it's always fun to talk about rhinos, and there's – Good news, there's medium news, and then there's some news that we need to keep fighting hard for rhinos. And, and this past week was World Rhino Day. And so Chris and I uh, decided to make it World Rhino uh, Week or Month week. because yes, 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 <laughs> we're yes. a little yes. late to the show. Uh, but it, it is. Uh, talking about the Sumatran rhino today is just, it just brought back so many fond memories. I am one of the very few people in North America that have had a chance to see and feed a Sumatran rhino uh, up close. Uh, They are no longer in North America. They're all in Sumatra. And Chris and I will talk all about that and what's happening over there. But uh, yes, uh, bringing awareness about the Sumatran rhinos in general, but especially Asian rhinos or more specifically the Sumatran rhino is so important. They're critically endangered. There's maybe 80 left spread across like three separate, Conserve forest ecosystems. Once again, we'll dive into the um, the details on that today too. But the species is charismatic and gorgeous, uh, just just a wonderful, wonderful creature that needs our attention. And the good news that we're going to talk about is there's a lot of people working together yes. to save them. And so there, it is a feel good story in that. But I mean, only 80 left, and mm-hmm. I, I had fun learning. They're the most closely rated related to the woolly rhino.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most ancient. Yeah, you'll yeah. talk about that yeah.
1: in evolution. And they're they're kind of hairy. That's why Harrapin's nickname was Harry. Mm. And they're just a darling, darling rhino. And, and they, they're in desperate need of our help.
0: They are. They are. It, it, it's funny. I, I, I would say, oh, I'm one of the few in the Southern Hemisphere that got to feed them with you or feed Harrapin with you. But that's not true because they are down in this part of the world. And I know Jesse – when he worked at white Oak, he got to, uh, mess with Harrapin quite a bit too. So, you, you know, it was, that was such a treat back in the day when you, you first took me to that conservation center and I didn't realize I was looking at one of the most endangered large mammals on earth at the time. So it was fun this week doing the research, remembering that being a foot away or two feet, feet away from such a large mammal. And Harapin, which we're going to, you know, reference him back and forth uh, in the podcast, but he was born at the Cincinnati Zoo. He was one of only five Sumatran rhinos born under human care. And he was actually shipped back in 2015 because he's, he was a much better, better benefit to the species going back to Sumatra. And he's at the Sumatran rhino sanctuary now where he is helping to keep his species alive. And so just a, a a great species to learn about. We love talking rhinos. So, you know, and I want to hearken back to, to episode 55, when Angie interviewed Dr. Barney Long on Sumatra rhino conservation. So Dr. Barney Long was working with Global Wildlife Conservation, but they renamed it to... Rewild, right? It was a great and they're interview. working with
1: Leonardo DiCaprio. So <laughs> there's your way man. In. I know. I just to talk to Dr. Barney Long again would be fun for me yes. as well because he's just we should so we should. yeah he's he's so wise.
0: Yeah, we need to get him back. But it was a gr- it was a fascinating interview. I re listened to it this past week. You know, talking about bringing a portion of these rhinos under human care to protect them and, and let them re- regenerate their population. So a lot to talk about today. And I just want to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. Again, thank you. Our, uh, our August, I believe it is uh, conservation organization poll is up. So they are voting on that now to see who we send money to. Again, we're sending money to all these organizations, you know, a portion of what you give us. It's helping pay the bills, help pays the website, uh, all of the, the stuff that makes this podcast possible. So, again, for one cup of coffee a month, you support us. You're supporting conservation and conservation organizations. Thank you so much.
1: Well, Chris, I just want to give a big shout out to Laura, who sent us a lovely email, gave us some great suggestions on species we can cover here in the future. And she volunteers at the Toronto Zoo. So kudos to you, Laura. I can't wait to get to Toronto Zoo. And then also Margot sent us an email with a very cool recommendation of a hyrax, which is right up Chris's alley. So he did some research on um, hyrax. So that would be a fun one. And lastly, uh, hopefully next week, I'll be announcing a small special project by one of our fans named Josh. And what he's been working on and something he can bring all of us that will be an awesome gift for this winter holiday season. So that will be a fun announcement for next week. And then just lastly, uh, Nurse Grainer from Savannah, Georgia. Woo-woo. Thanks for giving us an awesome five-star review on iTunes. We really appreciate your kind words. And your great recommendation of a secretary bird. <laughs> Ooh, awesome. yeah. okay, that would be awesome. I not that fun? One, mm-hmm. Another
0: one. Yeah, another one. Oh, I love There's so many cool birds. I know we have a lot to cover <laughs> in the next few years, especially so as, as Jesse gets me out birding. Uh, it's just—it's so much fun. All right, Angie, the Sumatran rhino is the most ancient, but it's also the smallest of all the rhino species.
1: Yeah, Chris, they're just little guys and gals. They're super darling. That's probably why I described them as uh, darling or cute. I shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't use that to reference size. But for me, definitely a little less intimidating since they're usually only around like 700 kilograms or 1,500 pounds. And when I met Harrapin, he was not an adult. So he was a super little guy and just darling, uh, like a little teenager, just super cute. But yes, indeed, Sumatran rhinos are the smallest of the five species of rhinos and their color is going to be usually dark gray or brownish dark brown in color and their body is thick in stature and overall like from head to toe kind of short bodied and what are their most distinguishing features is they have two really deep skin folds that encircle their body between the legs and the trunk and it almost reminds me of like a dinosaur Skute, if you will, or mm-hmm. something. And the Asian greater one horn rhino, which is much, much, much bigger, has a similar almost like plate look of these giant skin folds. And these body folds, if you will, are much different than like when we think of our African rhino species, like the black rhino and the white rhino. And the skin on the Sumatran rhino is really thick and very, very, very leathery. So it also can wrinkle too around the edges of these folds. And what also helps separate the uh, Sumatran rhino from other species of rhinos is its thick hair. It has these short, stiff hairs that can get kind of long depending on uh, the rhino's grooming habits or uh, wallowing or rubbing habits, which makes me think of it being a hairy rhino, which once again is a very different visual look to it compared to like a black or white African rhino. But since we're talking rhinos today, the Sumatran rhino, of course, has a horn, and it has two horns that, of course, decorate its snout. Um, but the front horn is, is much more smaller and less conspicuous than the nasal horn. And so... It might just be because there's not as many photos of them, but I've I've never seen a photo of a Sumatran rhino that has like a huge horn, like when we think of the blacks or the white rhinos in Africa. But even though they do have two, like I said, that that frontal one is, is much, much smaller. And then Chris, talking about the Sumatran rhino nose. Oh, that widow, widow, widow nose. They make me want to baby talk because they just have the triangular upper lip that's just darling. I'm looking at headshots of them right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a cuter rhino. They're all, obviously, we all know that I think all rhinos are cute. So, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but this, uh, similar to a black rhino in Africa, they have the triangulated upper lip that goes down into a point, uh, which is used for grasping brows. Because we'll talk about later on when we get to nutrition how Sumatran rhinos are more browsers that reach up. And into bushes and leaves, mm-hmm. uh, than than grazers like the white African rhino that will graze grass on the ground. Yeah, so this kind of broader, almost, yeah. Yeah, 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 lip, right? yeah, 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 a broader lip, but the upper lip is uh, has like a little bit. It's prehensile a little bit, um, yeah. probably not as much as the black rhinos is, yeah. but just just darling. Um, yeah, and yeah. they the hair. I could just look at pictures of them all day. And if you're curious, uh, we'll put some good photos on our show notes and of course and some of their vocalizations that we'll go over to later today are just awesome so you'll definitely have to check out our show notes
0: yeah yeah in fact you know shout out to to rachel there again in the uk she's doing an amazing job with her write-ups now so a lot more information on the website as well as she she finds some really great youtube videos that we we put on there yeah i was saying like these aren't very big they only stand three and a half to five feet at the shoulder which is one to one and a half meters and you know up to 10 feet long or three meters so they're they're a big animal they're just not very tall you think and mm-hmm. then, like angie said on average about 1500 pounds or close to you know 750 800 kilograms and i remember harrapin i remember he wasn't very big it, you know, no i
1: think he was whites. still a teenager when we saw yeah. him i uh, was still growing because we'll talk about their life cycle which is one of the mm-hmm. one of the, the problems or things that don't work for them When we talk about trying to get their numbers up is they have this long generation interval and they don't really become quote-unquote mature till they're seven eight nine or maybe even a little older than that so they're very slow growing yep. and so but it takes them a while to get up to that 1500 pounds
0: Right, right. Now, this is what I found interesting, particularly about the Sumatran rhino, is they used to range all the way to the, the eastern Himalayas and eastern India. Like, they had a huge range all the way through Thailand, maybe Vietnam and parts of China, and then obviously, you know, the Malay Peninsula. That's where they used to range.
1: As recent as, like, the early 90s.
0: Yeah, yeah and then now today they're only found in on in, in Indonesia on the islands of Sumatra and Borneo so they have lost almost all of their territory like all of it all of it this is a species that is very close to extinction but you know we're going to we're going to talk about some of the things that people are doing to help preserve them you know because we can turn this into a phenomenal conservation success story due to Dr. Barney Long and so many others that are fighting for them.
1: Yeah. And the other thing too, that's really important to know about the Sumatran rhino is it lives in these dense jungles. And the other thing that's really important to consider about the Sumatran rhino is it, although it can live in a variety of habitats, it's really found mainly in these dense forests and jungles that are really hard to reach and track and study. So there's really still a lot we don't know about them. But throughout the past 20 to 30 years, from the handful that live under human care, we have been able to garner some information about their breeding and their natural history. But once again, when we talk about tracking these animals and finding them, this is, this is not like the plains of Africa, where you can look across and say like, oh, there's a there's a rhino.
0: Yeah, and of the 80 that we know about, uh, 50 are in one part in the northern Sumatra Lucer ecosystem. Probably saying that wrong, but about 50 No, I
1: think it's it's Lucer.
0: Lucer, okay. 20 in Way Kambas National Park in southern Sumatra, and then up to 10 in Kalimantan in... What what was the sanctuary
1: you mentioned? Kellyanne. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: So that's it. Like, that's the three. They think there might, like you said, some... Might be in this other part national park. They just don't know. But of the eighty, we know, you know, those the the three places they're at. I mean, that that's scary, you know, for for an entire species.
1: Well, Chris, you brought up a really good point about these three distinct, different ecosystems where very few animals live, but they're super fragmented from each other. So, an animal from the Way Canvas area, which they estimate the wild population to be about. 20 is not going to be able to then travel to the Mount Lucer National Park area where there's an estimated a, a potentially 50 Sumatran rhinos. So they they're just too far spread out. And when we think about low numbers of animals and what we've learned from history is there can be inbreeding depression or a local climatic event uh, or a zoonotic disease that can just take those remaining 20 individuals like quickly, no no problem. And so we need numbers, right? And that is the goal. And that's been the goal f- for a while since uh, the late 90s and early 2000s when we realized that, okay, these Sumatran rhinos, the populations are crashing and there's too much poaching and too much uh, uh, habitat destruction and things like this. And so with the numbers and populations so low and so fragmented, experts from around the globe and even primarily in Indonesia have come together and developed this single nationwide breeding program, which is a collective effort of many local um, initiatives and then of course the federal government and then several international groups as well helping. So it's really quite awesome because prior to this, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. But the good news is, is having this single nationwide breeding program for Sumatran rhinos is doing so many things to help save them and working together. And so Theoretically, we're not throwing good money after bad. Uh, We're not reinventing the wheel. And to quote my buddy, uh, Dr. Barney Long, he does say this plan is ambitious, audacious, expensive, and politically very challenging. But it's the best chance these Sumatran rhinos have. And so what the goal, the long-term goal of the three national breeding centers is in the area of Way Canvas, where the wild population is 20. That's the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary, which is already an existing center. It's home to seven rhinos, and two calves have been born there. And that's where our buddy, Harrapin, Harry, who Chris and I got to meet, moved from Cincinnati and then Florida, uh, where I got to meet him, to this location on Sumatra. And so this sanctuary is established, and the rhinos live basically like in the wild, but they're contained for the most part. So they're still out in the jungles, but of course they keep an eye on them and they are working on a breeding program trying to get Harapen to do his job and his relatives. And as Chris alluded to earlier, two calves have been born at the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary, one in 2012 and then one in 2016. They are both born from the same parents, and so now um, the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary's goal is to kind of mix some genetics in there, and hopefully Harapin can do his job. And um, and Dantu, which I follow on Facebook, and A N D A T U Rhino, you can follow him on Facebook. Uh, he's one of the he's one of the babes that was born at the Combus Rhino Sanctuary. So good things are happening there. But some of the initial data with camera traps and just uh, locals think they think that the wild population, which is thought to be twenty around Y Canvas, mm. is has been declining. Like there's less yeah. of them there. But once again, it's really hard to do a population count because it's just such a, a dense a dense population. And so the goal is in the near future to try to, if, if possible, to try to capture, I don't know, I can't remember the exact number. I don't know if it's one or two uh, or three more animals to basically secure their safety and to bring in those genetic in order to breed at the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary with, of course, the idea of rewilding all of these Sumatran rhinos uh, once we can get the numbers up. So that's basically one of the conservation centers. The other two conservation centers, the Kellyanne and Kalamanta, uh Indonesian Borneo, has one Sumatran rhino there who um, was captured in 2018. And she's in good health. And camera trap evidence suggests that there's another female around that's been identified as Perry. Uh, and they would like to potentially capture her. But all the plans with the breeding programs have pretty much been put on hold with COVID. Uh, but in Kellyanne, our Cal mantra there, the wild population is thought to be less than 10. So for those of you that are like, why are they trying to catch up Perry or other rhinos? Uh, because they will not make it on their own in the dense jungle. I mean, they probably cannot even find each other to breed. Mm-hmm. And so this is the goal is to not necessarily catch all of them up, but at least a few, so that we can keep this genetic bank of these Sumatran rhinos and hopefully create more of them, which then, of, which of course can then be rewild eventually over time um, in Indonesia. So that's the goal. Um, and once again, it is, it's, it's a very, it's a very lofty goal, but it's a critical goal. And the last conservation center is the Lucer area, the Mount Lucer National Park. And in that ecosystem, they don't have any caught, uh, but they think there's 50 50 wild Sumatran rhinos there in that area. And they're currently starting to begin construction on the Aceh Lucer Breeding Center. And then the goal is to continue to try to track these rhinos and and potentially locate them and then capture a few of the individuals. Now, with the looser national area, the way that Dr. Barney Long explained it is that there's probably about 45 of them in one region of the looser national park. Mm-hmm. And those guys are going to leave alone because they think that they can probably find each other and hopefully breed. But their census data shows that there's a few scattered individuals and in another end of the park, which they, they really, the researchers truly believe that they can these mountainritos could not find each other because it's just once again this dense jungle mm-hmm. and there's so few of them So those are the ones that they hope to track and potentially bring to the um looser conservation center that they're still building so they're still at the very beginning of this these conservation centers for the most part, especially the two new ones um the looser and the Kalyan but it is a really important and good goal that they're having, because once they have a few individuals at each of the locations, because they're acting as a single nationwide breeding, uh, facility that they can then trade individuals to really help boost the genetics and reduce this inbreeding depression that, uh, we think that we're seeing in the rhinos, um, Chris and I did a lot of work on rhinos uh, during my dissertation and just learning about uh, certain species of rhinos that are human care have a lot of reproductive issues, the females. They have ovarian cysts and uterine cysts and their cycles are wonky and all of this and that and trying to figure out why. And researchers are still working really hard at that. So several accredited zoos throughout the country, not only in the United States, but internationally, um, Germany, and other, other locations. And of course, here in Sumatra as well, because what they found is a few of the individuals that were brought in from the wild, they were brought into way canvas that have had a calf Uh, upon ultrasound. Now, what they're finding is this female that once again, came from the, you know, came from the wild and now has some reproductive malformities, I believe in her, um, in her ovary. And so this is where when people are like why you know why is this important Well, in this case, because, um, especially in Cincinnati, Dr. Terry Roth and uh, Dr. Janine Brown, two of my uh, zoological researcher heroes, these women are incredible, the work that they've done. Um, Janine Brown, more for elephants, and Terry Roth, more for rhinos, but of course they come together because they're these great, awesome people. And I got to meet Janine Brown, and it was like a rock star moment, but she was totally down to earth. And anyways... um, and she wanted some of my. Uh, she wanted to talk phytoestrogens with me, which yeah, was know. super cool. I still. She. I like, We still talked about maybe sending samples. And this was all yeah, yeah. all be, um, back and forth to each other. But this was before COVID happened and the world ended uh, temporarily. So <laughs> yeah. I need to reach out to her again. But yeah. at any rate, they did incredible work on basically assisted reproductive technologies in rhinos, including artificial insemination and all these, and ultrasound, oh my gosh, so much ultrasounding, Uh, learning about their cycles, learning how to keep rhinos pregnant by putting them on uh, progesterone uh, when they're pregnant. And so just really, really important foundational work that now is going to be utilized, hopefully, at the Sumatran Rhino um, Sanctuary to help these wild rhinos get pregnant, stay pregnant, um, and hopefully mix genetics and things like this. And so we wouldn't have that information, that knowledge if it wasn't for and it's not just uh Cincinnati. There's several colleagues that do really great rhino um research over in Europe. Uh so it is really important. It is it is going to help save the species. I just got goosebumps because I really believe for the Sumatran rhino, we are not too late. And just knowing Chris that the Indonesian government, the local stakeholders, the international alliances—they've all come together. They've agreed this is the best plan, and this is really really good news that they're working together. No, it is it is, and it it's funny that that leads me into
0: you know my soapbox of the week, and and I did want to give you a lot of kudos for the work you did. Angie's one of the few people on earth that can ultrasound a rhino.
1: It's hard. (laughs) I lost my arm. I'm like, I need longer arms.
0: You do, you do. But, you know, Angie did get to uh, do some of that work. Her entire PhD thesis or dissertation was the whole genesis of it was to help rhinos. That was our goal in the end. And and hopefully your work has contributed to that, to, to where you're actually helping Sumatran rhinos. So, you know, good job on, on that, Angie. And again, good job on, on why captive breeding in zoos, as well as the research they're doing is so important because, you know, when you're looking at one of the most endangered species on earth, how do we help them? So this week in the news, Angie, mammoth cloning has been at the forefront again. And I, I'm going to talk about how reproductive technologies are helping endangered species get into a little bit of the specifics. And then I'll and I'll kind of wrap up on this cloning thing with mammoths and why I think it's just, it's, ah, I just have my opinions on it. So I'll give a little bit of opinion at the end uh, on it <laughs> because I used to always tell my students, they need me on that mammoth project, you know, back in the day before I really went down this rabbit hole of the podcast and you leading me to water showing me this destruction that's going on around the planet. And when I was doing my immune genetics work, I was like, Oh, this is why they need me. Um, anyways, I, I I think it's a waste of money, but how reproductive techniques and technologies are helping the Sumatran rhino or Asian elephants, African elephants, the work Danielle and I did, so one of the things we do, so the male gametes, so you have the male and female gametes, you have the sperm cell and the oocyte come together to form baby. Well, when you're dealing with endangered species or large mammals like elephants and rhinos, a lot of this stuff has yet to be flushed out. So the work Angie was doing was very important. And I'll start with just the male gamete and semen. So what we can do and what, what zoos are doing, while, why we need these animals under human care is we develop protocols. So to collect semen from an elephant, from a rhino, we have to develop those techniques because what we're doing with those male gametes is we can either turn around and use it to artificially inseminate a female because we can't let nature take its course or can't put the, the two animals together Or one of the things I like to always tell my students is you just can't move elephants around the country or rhinos, but I could collect semen from an elephant in Florida, cool it, ship it, and it could breed a female in the afternoon in San Diego. You know, we can do that or we can freeze it. We can freeze the semen and say, use it in five or 10 years. And that's what we're doing today. So uh, zoos across the world are developing these techniques. It's important because just in rhinos, Angie, the, the two last northern white rhinos, so they're the most endangered rhino species, bar none, but they're a subspecies of white rhino. But the two northerns, everybody's pretty aware of them. They have actually created nine embryos using frozen semen from a male that died a decade ago. So instead of their dad, Mm -hmm. yeah, the dad who died a few years ago, they're using semen from a, from a distant related male and they're able to create embryos using frozen semen. And how they did that is these last two females, researchers that you know, that you've been working with, that you worked with in your PhD work, they go in and they do an oocyte retrieval so you can go in and collect oocytes from the ovary the female gamete remove it and then use that frozen sperm cell and inject it directly into the embryo and they created nine embryos so right now these nine embryos are frozen we have nine northern white rhino embryos in storage the trick and and we don't have I believe we don't have the techniques yet is we can thaw the embryos. We, we do that with many, many species. It's transferring that embryo into a surrogate mom. So if everybody could know, think of test two babies going back to the seventies, when we first started developing these techniques, we can create human embryos in labs and they do this all over the world. And then either take that embryo and stick it in the mom. Or a surrogate, somebody who volunteers to carry that baby for her. So with these nine northern white rhino embryos, probably what they're going to do is develop the techniques and try to implant those into southern white rhino females. They're very genetically close. Again, that immune genetics can get a little tricky. That's why, it, you know, that's a whole different discussion for another day but they should be relatively close genetically to be able to carry those rhinos to term and then give birth to a purebred, pure genetic northern white rhino. That's the goal of that project, right? So uh, there's so many more techniques. It's again, what I taught, uh, what Angie was a specialist in. These are just some of the things that the work that's going on in zoos in conservation centers around the world to try to save these species. But again, more work is needed. I mean, just with elephants, we, we, we have so much work to do with elephants. It's ridiculous. We were at the basic trying to learn how to freeze, you know, male semen from the elephants because we don't have very good techniques with that. So anyways, getting back to cloning, is cloning the answer? And, you know, Dolly was cloned in the 90s. Since then, we've cloned multiple species. The only extinct animal we've brought back from extinction was the Pyrenean ibex that went extinct, you know, at 20, 30, I think 30, 40 years ago. It, it, it's not something archaic. It was, it, it was recently extinct. The baby was born but died within minutes because it had immature lungs. So that was the only extinct animal we brought back. Now, this mammoth project is being pushed by Dr. George Church, brilliant geneticist out of Harvard, doing a lot of stuff with gen- gene editing. Uh, but still, I think this is a boondoggle. They they just announced this week that they have $15 million in funding and they need more. So they're out in the press pushing it. Uh, the thing... Uh, Is with cloning, you need, again, try not to get too technical. You need live cells. So you would actually need a a mammoth that you can go and take a live cell and we can stick it probably in an elephant oocyte, zap it, and potentially have a mammoth. The thing is, we don't have live cells. The the only tissue we have is 40,000 years old from something we dug up in Siberia. DNA degrades, blah, 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 blah. So what they're going to do is go in and edit elephant DNA to make it look like a mammoth. It's a mammoth hybrid. It's not even a true mammoth. It's something that might look like a mammoth, might act like a mammoth, that they're trying to do. And they say they'll do this within six years. They'll produce an embryo, they think. That's what they're predicting. So,
1: so they're um, basically just copying the DNA of the mammoth, but it's not actually mammoth. Cells. No, no, no. Gotcha. No. Okay. They're taking
0: genes from that we've we've cloned. They're taking genes that they've sequenced, and they're editing an elephant, Asian elephant, because that's the closest relative genome, and then they're going to create this monster hybrid. That's gotcha. not even a true mammoth.
1: And Chris, honestly, all that's very like Jurassic World and cool. My boys are super into the <laughs> the hybrids that they yes. make on that show, but when we look at the millions of dollars being spent. Mm-hmm. Couldn't we maybe just shuffle that money to keep the Sumatran rhino alive?
0: Exactly. That's my whole point. That's where I've come to the realization that this is—it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We're spending this um, this amount of money on a project
1: or the resurrect- planet. I mean, yeah, to make sure that we're all around.
0: I know, and <laughs> that we're all around. This is what irks me about it. Not so much. Okay, do science because just because because that's why we do science a lot of times. But now they're using climate change as a marketing tool. They're saying that resurrecting the mammoth will plug a hole in the ecosystem left by their decline 10,000 years ago. Really quick, I think I've mentioned this before, the way mammoths punch holes in the permafrost and the way they supposedly uh, graze or whatever, that they've actually helped keep the earth cooler. And I just... I'm like, are you kidding me? How are you going to get tens of thousands of mammoths in the next 50 years to help on climate change? It it irks me as a scientist because you shouldn't be using that to try to drum up money. You know, there's no way they're going to recreate mammoths to rewild Siberia to reverse climate change.
1: Well, yes, Chris, and I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. There's got there's tons of other ways to uh, help. Battle global climate change—that we already technologies we already know about—we need to just implement.
0: Yeah, it just it, it 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 gnaws at me when I read this stuff. And fortunately, other scientists are out there in the press saying this is totally a joke. There's no way you're going to get enough mammoths out there to have any sort of impact. And they're not even mammoths; they're elephant hybrids. And My, you know, there's so many problems with this project. Where are they going to get the surrogates? But my God, Angie, we only have 20,000, maybe 40,000 Asian elephants left. Where are you going to get thousands of female Asian elephants to carry these, these thousands of mammoths that are going to repopulate Siberia to reverse climate change? It just does. It it just irks me because it damages science, in my opinion, and the credibility of science. And then we, we run into what we're seeing with COVID. So overall I agree with Angie I this money is better spent maybe it, it will help elephants in the long run and developing some of these techniques that they want to do I I don't know why they get the press I guess it is Jurassic Park like oh we're gonna do this and so the press prints it but it's 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 in our lifetime we'll probably see some sort of mammoth elephant hybrid but it's not going to be a true mammoth All right. Getting off the soapbox. There you go. That's what's going on. But a lot of these technologies are helping true endangered species. So that's the good news.
1: Yes, Chris. I couldn't agree more with all that. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And
0: my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything
1: yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything.
0: And can I control my
1: co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All
0: right, so let's let's get through evolution, and then we're, we'll we'll you know not tons of physiology, but we'll jump into behavior and repro. So we've covered rhinos before, you know, mammals, fifty four hundred species of mammal. The order of rhino I probably want to probably the favorite of angie's is the odd toad ungulates parasidactyla it's only 17 species but equidae so your horse's asses, zebras love it yep mm-hmm. your tapers mm-hmm. my soulmates <laughs> they are second
1: soulmates yes
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so the family is rhinoceros so you do have your five so going through the five you have the white rhino eight, about 18, 20,000 and decreasing in population. So they're near threatened. You have the black rhino, you have about 5,600. They're critically endangered. Their populations are increasing, which is good. The greater one horn rhino or the Indian rhino, right? Mm-hmm. About 3,600. The, the, they are vulnerable. They are increasing. The Javan rhino, The International Rhino Foundation has them at 74, stable, so not decreasing or increasing, and critically endangered. And then the Sumatran rhino, you know, which we know is less than 80, critically endangered. So those are your five species. Now, within the Sumatran rhino, you have three subspecies. The species name is Dicerhinus Sumatranus. So the Western Sumatran rhino is the one that has, you know, 60 70 the bornean rhino or eastern sumatran rhino has about 15 and then the northern sumatran rhino they considered extinct that was the one uh, in Myanmar, which Mm -hmm. i think the last 20 years they went extinct uh off the continent of asia so now they're just on sumatra and borneo so what we know rhino evolution again quickly uh, the earliest ones probably 55 60 million years ago Hierarchus, Eximus, looked like a small horse or taper, had no horn, common ancestor to those three different, you know, the equus, the horses, zebras, tapers, things like that. 38 million years ago is when rhinos first appeared in Asia. And then there's there's three families. So the higher, cantandidae, a running rhinos, the amniodontidae, the aquatic rhinos, which I think would be so cool to, to
1: so cool. I right? know to,
0: to jump down this and then rhino sauce. Oh, rhinocer today, which is the forefathers of of our five species. All sorts of rhinos, Angie. You had the massive Indricotherus, which was that hornless rhino. It stood twenty feet tall, thirty feet long. The one of the largest terrestrial mammals that we know of was massive. And then you had those small running rhinos really quick. Sumatran rhinos are the oldest. They broke off about 15 million years ago. Haven't changed a lot since the greater one horn and the Javan are closely related. They split about 4 million years ago and the white and black rhinos broke off from the family tree about 23 million years ago. And then those two split about 4 million years ago. So yeah, that's rhino evolution in a nutshell. Didn't didn't want to have to rehash all of that, but jumping into life cycle and what they eat. Angie, I mean, you said long generation interval, but they only live about 35 to 40 years. I mean, that, that's not long.
1: Well, yeah, Chris, if you think about um, not reproducing until they're seven, eight, nine, um, that's if they can find a mate. And then the female is going to keep a calf by her side for a while. So, They're probably reproducing, I mean, this is in an ideal world in the heyday or whatever, uh, maybe every three to four years. So, yes, Chris, it's definitely concerning.
0: Well, you know, before we jump into behavior and then kind of talk about their reproductive cycles, like you said in the beginning with their lips, they are more browsers. So they, you know, as herbivores, they consume leaves, plants, young saplings is a big thing they consume. They like, but they do eat fruit, twigs, bark, you know, uh, bamboo, mangoes, figs, mangoes, figs, yum. Yeah. They eat quite a lot and they, they eat about hundred pounds a day or 50 kilograms. So that's a lot of herb. It's a lot. It's a lot of veg and salad in a day, but,
1: um, you know, they are, they are massive. Yeah. And they, um, will often spend a lot of time too getting their salt from salt springs So a lot of times these salt lick areas are really critical for the Sumatran rhino nutrition. And these licks can be found uh, in hot springs or from like muddy volcano areas. And it's also almost like a little social bar for them. So male Sumatran rhinos will often visit these salt licks to pick up the scents of females that are in estrus. But research has also shown that if there aren't any salt licks these communal areas um, to use available, researchers think that uh, the Sumatran rhinos get their salt, sodium, nutrient requirements from plant material, plants that are rich in minerals.
0: Yeah, just a wide variety of diet out there. But So behavior-wise, I mean, pretty mm-hmm. elusive creature
1: Super elusive, and what researchers think is that a smart rhino is going to breed a lot uh, before dawn, and before sunset, and will move a lot by night. So when researchers are trying to do population counts or track a rhino, it can be pretty difficult, and they move a lot. Uh, One paper called them inexhaustible walkers. Now I couldn't find how much they will you know how many kilometers they'll move on a given day and night, uh, but supposedly it's pretty far. And they do have territories, and so they'll have like a permanent home range. and a male's home range is going to be larger than a female's. but once again, I couldn't um, find about find out how big that range is. And these Sumatran rhinos are in these scattered locations in Looser Park National Park. And they can't find each other. I mean, that's a big problem, right? And so that's why the researchers and the conservationists and the federal government and all those local stakeholders are definitely wanting, hopefully, in the next year or so to try to locate them and bring them into the breeding sanctuary where their territories will actually overlap and they can maybe breed, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I found this interesting. Uh, Sumatran rhinos can swim well. And during the day, they're just chillaxing, right? They're just hanging out. They love to find wallows, so ponds of water from the rain or areas where they can dig out near a stream. And these wallows or these mud baths, of course, help cool the animal off, maybe keep the insects from biting them. And also... This thick skin with these folds, uh, the mud and the wallow can help keep the, you know, like us ladies, help keep our skin moisturized, which is very important, (laughs) right?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And so far, research does suggest that uh, the Sumatran rhino has seasonal movements. So depending on the rainy season and when the weather's a little cool or dry, they will probably return to higher ground to escape summer heat and summer insects uh, and then descend maybe down out of the mountains in the kind of cooler uh, time with like a little bit less rain. So so once again, when you're tracking a rhino, trying to find a rhino in this dense jungle, it uh, might be helpful to know what season it is, but it is so very dense and vast there that they do a pretty amazing job of eluding researchers and scientists so far.
0: I, I, it's gotta be difficult to study behavior in them. Something that I'm sure you would love to do if you didn't have three boys, (laughs) even John going out in the jungle. Well, it's so, it's
1: it's so funny you mentioned that, Chris. I mean, I, this, this week doing all these, uh, all this research, especially on these, um, these national breeding centers, one that's already been created, but the other two that are um, being developed right now, I was like, Oh my gosh, I need to just go work there i just need to go help i need to go to sumatra i need to offer my help hopefully they'll give me a hut and some rice to to eat that's all i would need and i'm like oh wait i don't think my kids would like that and so anyways i was like (laughs) anyway but maybe later on that's where john and i can retire i was thinking there or the rhino orphanage in africa i could Uh, retire there and just help um but there's a lot of good people there so I, I don't even think they'd probably even need my help at this uh, point in time but uh, but yeah it's funny you mentioned that because I'm definitely like oh man <laughs> I, I would, would love go, I, would go study, yeah. I don't know about tracking them in the wild though man I mean I've uh, interviewing some of these field ecologists mm-hmm, talking mm-hmm. about day you know, 14 days yeah, in in, Sonarto, in the yeah. junk yeah Sonarto tracking Java. tigers. Uh, yeah. fourteen days in to get the camera trap, and then fourteen days out. I'm like, well, that I imagine.
0: Is... I mean, how do they communicate? So uh, over those great distances, I wonder if you could just go out there and hear
1: them. Well, Chris, awesome that you mentioned that because the Sumatran rhino is one of the most vocal rhinoceros species, um, in the world. So a lot of what we know about their vocalizations and is that they're basically constantly talking and vocalizing, and it's thought that they also will do this in the wild as well. And as you mentioned, it probably is to help cover these long distances uh, through this thick jungle and for- dense forest vegetation. So uh, the Sumatran rhino will make three distinct noises. There's the whistle blows. Uh, the eps, E-E-P-S, if I'm saying that right, and the whale. And so I know a lot about whistles and blows, and I've heard those before in um, other species of rhino. But the ep was interesting to me. That's a short one-second long yelp, and it's actually determined to be the, one of the more common sounds. And the whale vocalization is named after the humpback whale, and it's almost like a song, but it's not used that often. It can vary in pitch and it'll last from five, six, seven seconds, and it just is really beautiful. Here, I want to play a quick clip for you. Isn't that just a remarkable sound?
0: I, if I heard that in the middle of Sumatra, I would be like, all right, why do I feel like I'm out in the ocean? <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. Isn't that beautiful?
1: Yeah. I wasn't familiar uh, with this, this whale vocalization, and uh, so it's just beautiful. I mean, I kept playing it over and over and like, is this right? But pretty cool. And then, of course, this whistle blow, it's going to be the loudest vocalization. That's probably how they communicate with one another if they need to through the jungle. And researchers think it might be involved with courtship or conveying danger or perhaps telling their location. And so although we don't know exactly how, or I couldn't find exactly how far this whistle blow from a Sinatra rhino will carry, its volume is similar to that of an elephant's. And elephant vocalizations carry up to 10 kilometers or six miles. So I mean, it definitely can hopefully... If there are other Sumatran rhinos in the jungle, they can hopefully hear it, theoretically. But the whistle blow of this Sumatran rhino is going to sound something like this. And if you haven't been blown at by a rhino, you haven't lived, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, <that's, because> you <laughs>
0: or, ultras, uh, ultrasounding them.
1: <laughs> yeah, or peed on or, you know, all the, all the things. But, but yeah, and speaking of uh, defecation, the Sumatran rhino is well known um, for this marking behavior where they will mark trails with their feces and urine and, and scrape the soil with their feet. And of course, marking serves as a very distinctly olfactory. <laughs> form of communication uh, with other rhinos passing through the area. But it's also visual too, right? Like if another rhino happens to be in sight of the other one and they see them scratching with their hind legs, uh, it can definitely tell them like, oh, okay, that, that's this yeah. this rhino's territory. Um, and with the scrape, it's basically going to be the hind feet just moving like a dog, almost, right? Um, I, I've had a female and a male dog that love to urinate and then they scratch their feet. Like they're, mm-hmm. I guess, to, I think to spread it around. And then often the Sumatran rhino uh, will deposit feces in this scrape area and then even spray urine over the vegetation. So watch out if you're standing behind one, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Chris, this is a totally awesome new behavior that I learned about Sumatran rhinos this week, is researchers also believe that they will mark their territory uh, by twisting and breaking these saplings, and that these twisted and breaking saplings, that they're probably feeding off of too a little bit, right, um, will act as like a marker, and that if a Sumatran rhino comes upon one that they will actually um, change directions so they might be using it as um, a way to mark places and then go All the right. other way or they might be using it territorial of like "ooh, this is somebody else's territory i better i better get go, out of here
0: get out of the other way yep, yep,
1: yep. Mm-hmm. pretty cool
0: and then just covering repro i know you know we talked about again long generation interval so what does that look like for them
1: Well, yeah, we do know that they breed slowly, just the whole process. And as far as how all this occurs in the wild, um, they're just so shy and secretive that we don't know a lot about their mating rituals and their habits um, in the wild. But what we do know, Chris, about the reproductive habits of the Sumatran rhinos come from studying them under human care. And, Chris, I forgot to add, too, that in general, Sumatran rhinos are solitary. So unless it's a male and fe- female coming together for breeding or a female and her calf, in general, they like to be alone or they're typically found alone. So theoretically, it's not that surprising that their populations are individual or scattered in some of these parks. But the problem is they're so far from each other. Right, right. And that's, that's the problem that they're not crossing territories for breeding. They're not finding each other, things like this. Um, because when a female is an estrus, she has to like, let it, let a let a male know, uh, her estrus period. Re- that's where she's a receptive to the male breeding Her really only lasts about 24 hours, we think. Wow. And, her estrus cycle is going to be between 21 and 25 days. And so it is important that a male's around during that 24 hour window, it's, yeah, it's right? A short
0: window. Yeah, it's, it's a, a short
1: very window. short window. Yeah. And so we do know that, um, they're during their courtship period when a female is receptive, uh, they're going to vocalize a lot to one another. The female going to raise her tail. Uh, she's going to urinate more. This is something we see a lot in, in um, horses, the male and female will have a lot more physical contact with one another and they'll use their snouts to bump into each other's heads and of course the the nether regions as well and researchers have said that their courtship patterns under human care seem to be most similar to that of a black rhino. And Chris, one of the problems um, of breeding rhinos in general, uh, but especially Sumatran rhinos, and I know with Indian rhinos and I think black rhinos, is um, some of these inexperienced males can be goofy or aggressive with a female, which might be part of their wild breeding ritual. Uh, but in the wild, a female can get away, right? She can be like, no, thank you, you know, uh, and get out of there. But, uh, of course under human care where there's uh, only so far uh, a rhino can go during breeding, you have to make sure that you have a, a male that it has smooth moves. He knows what he's doing. He's not aggressive. He's not over over excited or anything like that. That he just, you know, knows how to play it cool. And though there's definitely those males out there, uh, but I I know from a lot of my um colleagues that put male and female riles together, it's always a little nerve-wracking in the beginning. And that's where a lot of behavior comes into play and a lot and a lot of planning. Like I don't think people understand what goes on behind the scenes um, in some of these accredited zoos or breeding sanctuaries to uh, help make the animals have the most success for what they're doing uh, because these things can be dangerous. And so it's really important that the female is an estrus and that the male is uh, well-behaved, knows what he's doing. And then when the magic does happen, uh, The Sumatran rhino will be pregnant for about 15 to 16 months, so a very long distance. It's long. That's
0: so long.
1: And we learned a lot in Cincinnati uh, from the the captive Sumatran rhinos before they headed back to uh, these breeding centers in Sumatra about um, basically pregnancy loss. And so there were a couple successful conceptions, but then the pregnancies after a while, they ended in failure for a lot of reasons. And for a species that, once again, is pregnant for 15 to 16 months, and let's say they lose it after month five, and then you have to wait till they start cycling again, and just all the things, is it's, it, it's really a time-consuming process. And so luckily at Cincinnati, Cincinnati Zoo, uh, uh, Dr. Terry Roth and Dr. Janine Brown basically had a lot more success once they, once they started supplementing the pregnant Sumatran rhino with progestin which is a progesterone offshoot, which that's the hormone that the placenta makes to basically tell your body that, Hey, you're pregnant. Don't have a cycle and flush me out. And so, um, so the smart did really well on that. And that's why three of them were born in uh, Cincinnati. Harpin or Harry being um, one of them. And then and being another one. And then a female named um, Suki, I think. Uh, so, Anyways, um, we, we have learned a lot about about how to help help them kind of help themselves uh, when they're under human care, but it, it still is uh, not all ironed out. And so more work is to be done. And that's oh, when so. I'm like, I'll, I'll move there and just take behavioral data <laughs> all night long. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I think we can all agree upon one of the best things in the world is when that Sumatran rhino is born. And it's just the most darling thing. It'll weigh 25 kilograms and it'll have this short, it'll have this short coat. So it doesn't have the long shaggy hair yet. Um, And it's just darling as ever. It does have horns, but they're not super developed, of course, at this point. And in the wild, the Sumatran rhino calf will be hidden in dense vegetation for a while, while the mother goes and browses. But then after it starts to get a little stronger, um, it'll venture out with its mom um, around two months of age. Um, And she'll probably be teaching him where the salt licks are and how to browse and how to eat mangoes and all the yummy things. And weaning a Sumatran rhino calf doesn't happen until 16 or 17 months, which is, you know, close to two years. So about a year and a half. So... Well, that's a long, that's a huge yeah. maternal investment. Huge. And female Sumatran rhinos tend to be super motherly. They stay close to their calves, and the calves will even be by their side for up to four years. So when we talk about this inner birth interval, it's minimally three to four years. And since they don't reach sexual maturity until about seven or eight, I mean, or even 10, depending, um, you know, it, it takes a while. Like, and, and they only have, a, you know, only one calf is born at a time. And so it's, it's not, not, not so, like, yeah, right, yeah. it's not like we're even in the best case scenario. It's not like two years from now, we're going to, if we reduce Sumatra and Rhino, we're not going to be, like, great news, guys, there's 500 of them. Yeah, it's just no, not, way. it's not mathematically no. possible. No, no, no. So it
0: goes back to the cloning the mammoth. No. You're not going to repopulate Siberia with mammoth. Don't even ever say that again to the press. It's ridiculous.
1: It takes a long time. How I mean, elephants are pregnant even longer, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, 2
0: years. Yeah, yeah.
1: And they have, you know, they have their own redic- reproductive issues under human yeah. care and yeah. But Chris, I am hopeful with all these people fighting so hard for the Sumatran rhino that maybe we can redo this podcast in two years, and maybe the maybe the population can be up to one hundred or yeah, something like that. Amazing. And so, yeah. I and, and and I'm hopeful. Um, the researchers, the, the government, the stakeholder, local stakeholders are very hopeful and very willing to work their butts off to make some of these audacious goals happen. And so, I mean, Sumatran rhinos aren't out of the woods from habitat loss and poaching. That does still happen. It's pretty rare because, well, there's not that many of them and, and they are protected, but just in general, tell all of your friends, horn is not medicine. Horn is not for decoration. Horns are for rhinos, Mm -hmm. big rhinos. Smaller size rhinos, hairy rhinos, rhinos with folds, rhinos with no folds, black rhinos, gray rhinos, all brown rhinos, white rhinos, all of them. Like they, it's that is who the horn belongs to. And it's just incredible that even that, that this is still an issue i mean i know, i, I no, just can't no, i just it doesn't blows my no, mind uh,
0: we are making inroads and like global conservation force out there educating you know younger generations in asia and others and then you have people like rewild so uh, out there in the in the in the bush protecting them so who do you want to highlight this week there's probably 10 of them but did you pick one
1: <laughs> Well, of course, Chris, there's definitely some good ones out there, but the first one that probably comes to mind is the International Rhino Foundation that can be de- found at www.rhinos.org. The IRF is an incredible team of scientists, conservationists, um, communicators, educators that are working hard to save all the species of rhino, including the Sumatra rhino. They're definitely a big part of the team to help do this nationwide, uh, single breeding center for Sumatran rhinos, uh, to save the population. So anything you can do for IRF is incredible. They have an amazing website and they, um, are really active on social media, um, giving you pictures, keeping you updated on what's happening. I get a lot, you can get a lot of information, about this different species of rhinos from their website. So it's an incredible team. And I highly recommend you checking out uh, their website and of course, following them on social media and donating if you can. And I'd also like to give um, a big shout out this week to Rewild That's um, that Dr. Barney Long works for um, and with, and it's also uh, supported by Leonardo DiCaprio. Hey, hey. And that can be found at rewild.com, R-E-W-I-L-D.com. Beautiful website, awesome things on social media. And the main reason I wanted to highlight Rewild this week is because um, Rewild plus about um, seven or eight other uh, funders like Rainforest Trust and then some private funders uh, have come together to pledge $5 billion um, to basically expand and strengthen protected areas over the next 10 years. And so the goal is basically – to um, To reserve thirty percent of the planet planet's lands um, and seas by twenty thirty, and 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 several diversity hotspots like Gabon and Colombia, so. It's just incredible. I, I need to get one of those um, people on this podcast because, I mean, obviously, Leonardo yep. DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I know you're listening, and I'm sure <laughs> you're too busy like to promote this um, yeah. on our podcast, but I will promote it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just love the work that Rewild mm-hmm. does, and I know that they, of course, do a lot for the Sumatran Rhino as well and the Habitat, the Sumatran Rhino inhabits. So check them out, rewild.com and of course uh check out the International Rhino Foundation as well.
0: Yeah, no, we'll we'll follow up with some of that stuff that's just coming out this week and you know try to chase down some of these people and try to have Barney Dr. Barney Long back on. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, fascinating. he's probably a little bit more um in our uh our, our level, our playing field yeah. than uh, Mr. DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> You got to aim high, right? You're always, What did my my dad used to always say? Swing for the fences, right? Yeah, always, always.
0: Well, I hope we did him justice. Sumatran Rhino, you know, a lot of good stuff's happening. So don't lose hope. You know, there's a lot of people. Hopefully we've highlighted a lot of that uh, this week. And, you know, just stay tuned. We're, We're coming into spooky October. So we've got a great lineup coming.
1: Yes, thank you everyone for listening and hopefully you have fallen in love with the Sumatran Rhino uh, because it's definitely one of my favorites and one of Chris's favorites and they are worth fighting for, that is for sure.
0: Listen, learn,
1: share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.